The Lord of the Rings, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Star Wars. What makes these great legends of our time so popular? These great legends of our time, what makes them so popular? I think one of the reasons is that they're all stories which end in incredible victory. Each of them climax with the good guys conquering what has been portrayed throughout the story as overwhelming evil. Sauron and his armies, the the white witch and her minions, the dark lord and his intergalactic empire. And in the end, they are vanquished against all the odds. We love to read those stories, don't we? And we watch the films, Star Wars if you're a geek like me. We enjoy the hope that they inspire. Evil, finally, vanquished for good. But then we come back to reality. We put down the book, we leave the cinema, and we return to the real world in which we live. We read the newspapers, we watch the news, wickedness and suffering abound. School shootings, nations at war, terrorist actions, personal crises... And often, no doubt, we wonder, good? Really? Conquering evil? Oh, it makes for a great movie. But it just seems so detached sometimes from life in the here and now. Well, the aspect of the cross that we're looking at today in our series on Christ and his cross is called Christus Victor. Christ the Victor or Christ's Victory. Now, down the ages, many have been astounded, even appalled at the idea that we would speak of Jesus and the cross on which he died as a victory. But that is exactly what it is for those of us who are willing to see it. It's God's victory and his guarantee that one day evil will be no more. And our ability as his people to live wisely will depend on whether we will see and live in the light of Christ's victory or not. Let's start by looking at the need for a victory in the real world. What is the evil that actually needs to be conquered for us to know lasting peace? Lots of different ideas about what that evil actually is. Popular belief held by many today is that everyone... In, in their, down, deep down in their heart, they're essentially good. We are good people. You know, we just need to be nurtured with love and educated in the right way. And, and as we as society get better and better at doing that, evil will slowly dissipate. Now, it's a good thing for children to be nurtured with love and for us to be educated in a right and helpful way. But a cure... For evil, finally, in our world? Compare that idea to what we read in God's Word in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2, about the state of our reality. We read, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience. See, the problem of evil in our world is far more organized and pervasive than our world would like to believe. 
as humanity. We are a party to that evil. We're described here as those who are dead in our trespasses. We are sons of disobedience. We refuse to honor God as our creator rightly from the start, live with him as Lord. We follow our own desires. We live life the way we feel is best. That's what the Bible calls sin, our rejection of God as God. But you see what we see in these verses? We are not the only party at work in this rejection of God and this corruption of his good order in his world. No, we as humanity are under the influence of another. Described here as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, who we know to be, or scripture calls him, Satan, the accuser. He is the one who is subtly promoting our world in sin, leading to God's judgment and condemnation. And he's been working from the very beginning to corrupt, to destroy everything that God has made which is good, including us. We first see him back in Genesis 3, what we had in our Old Testament reading. So God's created all things good, declared them good. Satan, taking the form of a serpent, he lies to Eve, plants suspicion in her mind. Oh, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, you will not surely die. Your eyes will be open. You'll become like God, knowing good and evil. It's the lie of sin. You'll be free. You'll be the gods of your own lives. And so Eve doubts God, disobeys his word as her Lord, her provider, and believes Satan's lie instead. It eats of the forbidden fruit, and Adam eats as well. Despite God's warning that on the day they did that, they would surely die. And so God's good order in creation is corrupted. Man and Adam and Eve reject God as our God, submit to a lesser creature, believe him instead. And now we're all born in that pattern, in Adam's pattern of corruption. We choose to reject God as our God. And we suffer in a world broken in sin where each of us instinctively seek to live for our own desires over and against one another's as well as God's, all under Satan's hold. But thankfully, Genesis 3 is a passage of hope as well as tragedy. As God judges Satan in the form of the serpent, he says in Genesis 3.15 what we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. God promises victory, a victory over Satan, a victory over his grip over us as humanity, otherwise lost in sin and death. Or that grip is not going to continue forever, God says. As we briefly trace the story of God's people Israel in our Old Testaments, we learn two key lessons about the nature of this great victory that God promises ultimately over Satan and his evil. Now, Israel was a nation born into great adversity. They grew to be a great people in Egypt to the point that out of fear, the Egyptians they had lived with enslaved them. 
Israel, as God's people, they became a helpless nation under a ruthless enemy. Echoes of Genesis. But God promises them deliverance. Go to the next. Just go to the next one. There we go. He says to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. You shall plunder the Egyptians. God promises to deliver his people through the plagues, by the parting of the Red Sea, and then crushing Pharaoh's army behind them. God does deliver his people to the point that they are able to plunder the Egyptians. They, they carry away their riches, all at God's hand, to start a new life with him in the place of his blessing. When Israel are in the promised land, as long as they depend on God, who saved them to himself, he would fight their battles for them. He would deliver them from every enemy. But friends, we know, don't we, just from the past few weeks, been looking at lamentations that Israel ultimately failed to trust God, failed to obey his law. They sinned, and they suffered the consequences for it. But God still promised he would work to ultimately deliver his people from the deeper problem of their sin deep down in their hearts, that bondage under Satan that we all need liberation from. But this victory, it will come at God's hand, not our own. Second thing we learn is that God will deliver his people by his king. Later in Israel's history, God makes these incredible promises to David during his reign. David, he wants to build a house for God, a temple in which God will be worshipped. And this is God's response to him. He says to David, no, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What is God promising here? Rest. For his people, from all their enemies, established by a king from David's line. Now, rest for Israel as a nation, well, that meant security from the nations that were encroaching on their borders. And God did give them a king who brought them that kind of peace, security from other nations for a time. Under Solomon, they knew peace and prosperity like they'd never known before, but it was short-lived. See, Solomon still had a sinful heart like us. In the end, he failed to obey God, and as a result, the kingdom was split, never recovered. Israel and her short time of peace, it's just a picture. It's just a little model pointing forward to the greater victory that God promises to us, that he will defeat our ultimate enemy in Satan. He will deliver us from his grip for good. So two lessons. God must act to deliver his people. And God will deliver his people by his king. Where do we see those two things come together? God acting to deliver 
his people, himself, and then God delivering by his chosen king. Of course, it's in Jesus, isn't it? The Son of God, who became flesh, God himself, come to be with us. Who was also the Son of David, the promised king of David's line. And God promises of deliverance, they are all realized in him. I don't know if you've ever played in uh, the woods or the forests. You've gone up to the Cameron Highlands. You've gone to a very, uh, a beautiful, luscious area full, you know, loads of grass, loads of rocks, a bit shaded, and you've done this. This is what I used to do as a kid. I'd find a massive rock, and I'd pull it over to see all of the creepy crawlies and the insects and the bugs on the underside. You can see them on that rock there, maybe. The photo's not so clear. I, I just loved doing that as a kid back in England, to go into a forest pull up a rock and watch as, as the sunlight came down and all of the bugs and the creepy crawlies just suddenly scatter as they are exposed to the sunlight. There's this great flurry of activity as they try to get out of the light. Well, Jesus, as God's son, when he enters the world as God's king, there is a great flurry of activity. As faultness of darkness are confronted and exposed and dealt with. You see, there, I don't know if you notice this as you read through the scriptures, there are more explicit encounters with the forces of Satan, with demons and evil spirits in the Gospels than in any other part of the scriptures. Because in Jesus, God is acting decisively to restore his kingdom from Satan's grip, his good order in creation. And we see this in Jesus' encounter with demonic forces. At at the very beginning of his ministry, he faces Satan in the wilderness. He he resists Satan's temptations, remains faithful where we failed. And then in that resolve, he goes on to confront Satan's forces. Here's one example. Mark chapter 1, 23 to 27. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. Yeah, there's no question as to who's in charge here. Oh, the unclean spirit can only cry out as it recognizes Jesus and then obeys his every command. Now, why is that so important for us to see here? Let's just skip forward to Mark 3, 22 to 27. Religious teachers, they're jealous of Jesus and uh, the fame and popularity he's attracting. Accuse him of driving out demons by the power of Satan himself. Look at how Jesus responds. He called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. 
Why is Jesus' unquestionable authority so important for us? Well, it's because in sin we belong to the strong man who is Satan. That's what we saw earlier in Ephesians, isn't it? Following under the spirit of the air, sons of disobedience. It's in that bondage we cannot break ourselves. And Jesus alone is the one who has the power to bind Satan that strong man, to enter his house, to plunder his goods, his goods that are us in our sin, to liberate us. You see just small signs of that as Jesus goes about Galilee exercising evil spirits. And yet those small victories, they are just a shadow of the greater victory that he would ultimately accomplish. Not in the authority of his life that we see in episodes like that, but in the authority of his death. See, Jesus knew that his death would be Satan's knockdown blow. Have a look at Colossians 2. We had in our New Testament reading to understand why. We read Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Why does Jesus' death make all the difference? It's because as Jesus died at the cross, our record of debt, our sin before God, which carried the legal demand of his justice to judge and condemn us, that debt's wiped out. It's cancelled completely. Because Jesus, as the only man who withstood Satan's temptations, never sinned never deserved to suffer under God's judgment. He died in our place to pay our debt in full. So that as we are united to him by faith now, it's as if our sins that we have committed, they are nailed to the cross where he died. And that's where they stay. They are paid for by his blood. Which means that Satan and his forces, they have lost their hold on us. See how this passage ends. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As I mentioned briefly, Satan means the accuser. Because that's the only real power Satan has to destroy us. It is to accuse. To accuse us of our guilt before God. So that the legal demand of God's justice on our sins means that we must be condemned. Just as Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, so we must be put out of God's presence forever. But if we are in Christ, that legal demand is satisfied in him. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And we know that's true. Because Jesus conquered sin and death in his own body. Show that in rising again. Three days later, the evidence that Satan's grip has been broken over all who trust in him. Here's how Hebrews puts it. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Don't have to look very hard to see the fear of death in society, do we? 
elevators that have floor free A rather than four, because four in Chinese sounds like the Chinese word for death. Pregnant mothers are afraid to attend funerals because it's a bad omen for their unborn child. And instead, our society tries, in the face of death, to find security in the things of the here and now. You know, our relationships, our money, possessions. People build their lives on these hopeless foundations. Because apart from Christ facing death, this life is all we have to live. As death just draws closer and closer each day. And friends, Jesus liberates us from that hopeless condition. No longer have to live in the fear of death and condemnation. We no longer need to build our lives on the fading things of this world. Because Satan's grip over us is broken. Jesus has won the victory and our life is secure in him. Question is, are we letting his victory transform the way we live now? Is it having an impact on our lives today? Victory in Christ today. C.S. Lewis, in his novel, The Screwtape Letters, I don't know if you've read it, he describes two fundamental errors we can make in relation to Satan and his forces if we don't take victory in Christ seriously. Here's what he says. He says this. There are two, two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. They're not real, they're not important. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I remember visiting the house of a lovely Christian lady, and I noticed in her living room as as I walked in, uh, all these pictures on her wall, all the photos of the family and uh, and other pictures, and, and they were all crooked, every single one of them. And for me, I I personally found that really irritating because I'm one of those strange guys that, you know, I need to straighten pictures when they're on a wall. I need to put books in order on shelves. It's very silly, I know. Even remote controls. I can't have the volume on an uneven number. It's got to be on. Yeah, anyway. Let's not go too far. Let's get back to the point. So I asked her, why? Why are your pictures crooked? Why? And she said, oh, they're crooked so that the demons can't sit on the corners. She was dead. No, no, no. She was deadly serious. Deadly serious with me. As a Christian. In this culture, they are crooked so that the demons cannot sit on the corners. Because she was convinced this was a healthy way to protect herself from spiritual attack. To take this extra security. Crooked pictures on the wall. Demons can't sit on them. Others have asked me to pray over rings or necklaces, trusting that these objects will somehow ward off and keep evil spirits away. I've even heard stories, I've never encountered it myself, but I've heard stories of others who have offered up prayers and sacrifices to evil spirits as Christians to placate them so that they will leave their household alone. Now, friends, if we're doing these things, we do have an unhealthy interest in Satan. Because by doing them, we're actually denying the security we have in Christ and his death. We're putting our security rather in the vain things that we can do. And Satan loves it when we do that. 
Because the only way he can ultimately hurt anyone who is in Christ is to pull us away from our confidence in Christ. To tempt us away from that one security that we have in his cross. You know, for us at Smack, though, myself included, I suspect we're in greater danger of making the opposite error that C.S. Lewis mentioned. We, we deny Satan's existence, not, not in theory, but in practice. We fail to take him seriously as our adversary in any sense as Christians, especially in the ways that God war, God's word warns us to. And if that is the case for us, then we're going to be that much more vulnerable to Satan's schemes. We're going to turn now to Ephesians 6, page 1178. Ephesians 6. And let me read from verse 10. We read, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. Friends, whether we realize it or not, every time we wake up in the morning, we are going to battle. Not a a battle of flesh and blood, or bullets and bandages, a cosmic battle against spiritual forces that work to hinder our faith. And the only way we will endure by God's grace is if we're strong in the Lord. If we're taking hold of that which God has provided for us to prevail as his people in him. Paul gives us this inventory of spiritual armor in verses 14 to 17. When I I read these verses as a young boy, the first time I I read them, I I responded by by praying every day at the end of the day for, for quite a few weeks. God, give me the belt of truth. And give me the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and so on and so on and so forth. And I thought that as, as I did that, as, as I prayed that prayer, I believe God would be supernaturally equipping me with this invisible armor. So I could be invincible and nothing could hurt me the following day. I know Andrew used to do that as a kid as well. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. Now, I don't actually think Paul's encouraging us to do that. He's using the powerful image of a soldier getting dressed in his armor, getting ready for a battle, to describe what it means for us to be strong in the Lord's might. And each piece of armor that we have here is an element of our faith, which we are to work out in our lives. It's a result of the gospel taking hold. We're just going to focus on one of those pieces of armor today. It's down in verse 16. Have a look at it. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's as we walk in faith that we're shielded 
from Satan's schemes. Satan doesn't shoot physical darts at us, does he? But he will fire lying deceptions our way. That's what he did to Adam and Eve, isn't it? All the way back in the beginning. He didn't shoot a real arrow at them. He lied to them. He sought to deceive them. He planted suspicion in their minds. Did God really say that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? As God's people today, which of his deceptions are we most vulnerable to? Maybe we're we're facing a tough time at home or at college, work as a Christian. We're, We're putting Jesus first in some difficult situation, but we're wondering as it gets harder and harder, is Jesus really worth this? Is he really worth suffering for, losing my reputation for, upsetting my family for, hurting my career prospects for? And if that doubt just grows with no action of faith, Satan can use it to tempt us to just give up on Jesus. It's not worth it. So we need to defend ourselves. Remember what our faith actually means at such times. So that question, is Jesus really worth suffering for today? How do we answer that in the light of his victory at the cross for us? Yes! Jesus is now our security in both life and death. He's conquered sin and death for us. So why would we renounce him for an easier ride in the few brief moments of this life when I've got eternity to look forward to in him? And so we overcome our doubts, Satan's lies, as we take hold of Christ and the implications of his gospel for our lives. Of course, Satan doesn't just use opposition and hardship to challenge. No, he uses temptation as well, doesn't he? Maybe it's a bribe that we've been offered to look the other way. Another person in our lives that we're getting a little bit too close to. We found an easy way we've been told about to cheat on our taxes. Oh, is it really worth denying myself for Jesus? A close friend made a shipwreck of his faith because he exchanged Jesus for his love of a non-Christian girl. He knew it was a dangerous thing to do, to get involved with her. But this girl was pretty attractive, interested in him, and that didn't happen every day for my friend. So slowly... But surely, he pushed that relationship further and further and further as he pushed Christ away further and further and further as his Lord. Until for him, there was no turning back. Is Jesus really worth denying myself for? If we're holding on to Christ's victory by faith, the answer is yes. In Jesus alone, I have the promise of eternal rest that God made me for. Why would I exchange that for any temporary pleasure in the here and now, as tempting as it might be? Yet my friend did. You know, I think the worst lie that Satan can ever grow in us is to come to those times when we fail, and we know we've failed, we know we've sinned. And then we think to ourselves, is Jesus really enough? Is he enough to cover my sin? Think about how God sees us, and we think, oh, he just sees me for who I am, doesn't he? You're so bad. How could God ever really forgive you? When he he can see you for who you really are, you pervert, you liar, you hypocrite, you traitor. God says, take up the shield of faith 
Don't ever depend on your own goodness or your works to endure in this battle. No. Continue to depend on Jesus and the victory that has dealt with your every sin in full. Do that in the knowledge that Satan is angry. He knows his time is short. God has permitted him a limited rule for a time as we take the good news of Christ's victory out to a dying world lost in sin so that they might be freed from Satan's grip. They might be saved. For now, we resist. We conquer him by faith in the gospel, that victory won for us. But we do that knowing that one day the fight will be over. One day we will take the armor off. Victory will come in the end. And it will be seen in every way. Christ returns to establish his rule, God's rule, crushes Satan, restores God's good order to his world as it was meant. And we will be God's people in God's place under the blessing of his rule forever. Paul knew he belonged to that day. And shortly before he died, he wrote these words to his fellow minister, Timothy. He said, as an encouragement, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So like Paul, we are to keep on fighting. We're to keep the faith. We're to look forward to Jesus' return above all. We're to resist Satan's lies. Don't give up in hardship because Jesus is worth it. Don't give up in temptation because Jesus is better. Don't despair at sin because Jesus has covered it in full. Fight the good fight and look forward to that eternal crown that Jesus will grant to all who remain steadfast in him. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness.